Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Tonight, Oren, why don't you come in? Uh, naughty bedroom stuff, weird spiritual stuff, that's scary. <laughs> Gotta explain that one to the kids later. Yeah. Um, and so we hear about it often in kids' church and as growing up, if you've been raised in a Christian household, but because of that, we often park it in, this is kind of like a story for the kids. And so we look at that story and we might dismiss it as we come across in Luke's gospel and just kind of glaze over it. And so by doing so, we probably miss some of the nuances of the story and some of the deeper meanings and some of the layers that are actually in this story as well. And so what I want to do is tonight, as we look at this story through Middle Eastern eyes, I want us to re-engage with this story and see it as something that we maybe haven't seen it before. And so to do that, I'm actually going to use a narrative or storytelling framework to actually place ourselves in this story. So it's a little bit different. It might be a bit weird, but that's okay. We try all sorts of different things here at Central Church. And some of them work, some of them don't, and that's okay. Um, So the thing about stories is, to be honest, I love stories. Stories are interesting. It's easy to remember parts of a story than just someone preaching at you with uh, abstract facts. Um, It engages us as well, like I was saying. And I love telling stories. I love listening to stories. I love reading my kids' stories at bedtime, even though they're old enough to read their own bedtime stories. But I say, no, you're going to sit there in that bed, all nice and cosy. You're going to listen to me read this story because it's something that we like to do and engage together. And so that's what we're going to be doing tonight. We're going to be engaging in the story of Zacchaeus through a bit of storytelling and see what we can pull out of it. And by doing so, by placing ourselves in the shoes of the people that would have been witnessing it at the time, maybe we'll see what they saw and maybe we'll even feel what they felt as well. So what I'm going to do, first we'll go through the actual scripture in Luke's Gospel and then we'll dive into the narrative. So, actually, Caro, could you read this for me just so I can have a drink of water? Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything... I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. (laughs) I've got the last bit. Thanks. Okay, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to put yourself in this story. And I'm going to start this story a bit before we actually get to Zacchaeus, just to flesh it out a bit more, give it a little bit more context. So I want you to imagine 
that you're a Jew and a citizen of the city of Jericho. And that comes with a certain level of patriotism. On one hand, you're proud that your city of Jericho is a centre of culture and politics and commerce outside of that of Jerusalem. But on the, on the other hand, you know that there are those that believe that the city is cursed as it goes against the instructions of the great leader Joshua who condemned the rebuilding of the city of Jericho after it was sacked. But your day starts like any other. It's April, which is, the summer, which is summer and the eve of the Passover festival. The sun is hot and it beats down upon you on the dry, dusty ground. And you make your way down to the market centre in the eastern square of the city for your daily needs. When you reach the marketplace, you are met with the usual sight, a hive of activity with merchants, customers and passers-through. The smell of the markets is rich and complex, and although you've smelt it every day for almost every day of your life, it still stifles you every time you approach, and it takes you a little while to get used to. Uh, the smell is warm and pungent. It's a mixture of earthly smells of cattle, donkeys and chickens mixed with the florally fragrances that emanate from the perfume stalls, along with the spicy aromas that waft by from the food vendors. Your ears are bombarded with the sounds of animals alongside the cries of merchants spruiking their wares and children laughing and screaming as they play. Everybody is speaking with raised voices in the marketplace because to try to communicate with anything short of yelling is useless and you can barely hear yourself think amongst all the ruckus. Then you notice a commotion coming from the eastern gate of the marketplace, which says a lot in what is already a bustling centre. A crowd starts to gather and you assume a merchant must be selling a hard-to-find item or something at a heavily discounted price. But then you hear people yell, teacher, teacher, and you realise it must be a travelling rabbi. But strange, they do not usually stir up this amount of fuss. You watch on from a distance and notice an agitation grow amongst the crowd. And one voice from within the mass cries for the attention of the travelling teacher while others try to shush him harshly. Then a silence falls over the crowd and in fact over the entire marketplace and even the animals seem to stop their bleeding just for a pregnant pause. Then a scream breaks a silence. You think, has someone been murdered? But no, this is a scream of elation. And you see a man jumping up and down the middle of the crowd and you recognise it to be blind Bartholomew, the beggar, screaming, I can see, I can see. This is impossible, you think. For at least 30 years you've passed this man and even thrown him the odd coin or two, as is obliged in Jewish custom. The crowd erupts in celebration and a roar of praises towards God. Surely this is a miracle, but who is this teacher? And you're not left to wonder long as the cries that the Messiah has come fill the air. The Messiah, you whisper to yourself. Can this be true? From as early as you can remember, you've been told of the stories of the coming Messiah from your parents, teachers and elders. The one who will liberate the Jews. But after generations and generations of waiting, you admit you've grown apathetic towards prophecies and regard the Messiah as little more than a myth. Your mind begins to race as to what this means and then your heart skips a beat and a fear takes over you. If the Messiah has come here to overthrow the Romans, will you be expected to fight too? You've never even held a real sword before, let alone killed anyone, and the Romans rule with an intimidating and ruthless force. Still, you have to know more. So dropping your shopping baskets on the ground, you rush over and join the crowd to catch a glimpse of the Messiah. There are now over 100 people clamouring to see him, 
just like you and you can barely get a clear view. Then you feel a sharp push from behind and you turn around and lower your eyes to see a short, pudgy man in a fine garb trying to wiggle his way through the crowd. It's Zacchaeus. Even the sight of that little runt of a man makes your face turn red with anger. Seeing his fine clothes and golden rings on his fingers makes your blood boil as you know they were bought with the stolen money of you and your people. It's because of this crook that you do not have the finances to fix the roof in your house so your children cry at night when they are cold. It's because of this man that your cousin was forced to sell half of his field, meaning he had to give up half of his livelihood as well just to pay his taxes. And it's because of this man that your neighbour was arrested when he was already experiencing hard times, leaving his wife and children to fend for themselves. You despise this man. He disgusts you. He's worse than the Romans. At least they were born as Romans, but Zacchaeus, he chose to join them and profits off the suffering of his own people like a blood-sucking leech. Everyone knows he's wealthy because he takes more than what's required, but with Rome's support, you are powerless to stop him. However, here you might be able to just get a little bit of payback. You look around to see if any of the Roman guards are watching, and noticing they are not, you shove Zacchaeus, and the fat little man falls face first into the dirt. You smile with some satisfaction to yourself as you watch Zacchaeus stumble back to his feet and then run out of the marketplace as fast as his short, stumpy legs will carry him. You shake your head in disapproval. Has this man no shame? Only children run. It's not dignified for an adult to do, especially someone of Zacchaeus' rank. But you can't help but laugh at the sight of that pudgy man with his garment hitched above his knees running awkwardly in sandals. Your attention turns back towards the Messiah and you catch a glimpse of him. And to your surprise, he looks disappointingly normal. You're not sure what you expected, but if you pass this man in the street, you would not have even given him a second glance. Yet, you continue to follow the crowd through the city and hear the people offer the Messiah, whose name is Jesus, you quickly find out, offers of accommodation for the night as it is custom with any dignitaries that visit the city. First, there are just offers from the local townsfolk, and they all decline by Jesus, and rightfully so. The Messiah's not going to stay at the house of a mere carpenter, who they think this is. But then the offers of accommodation come from the more and more elite members of Jericho. The principal of the school of scholars, the chief of medicine, even the head of commerce. But surprisingly, all offers are politely declined. You continue to follow the Messiah through the city, just as one of the swarm gathered around him and hanging on his every word. Time seems to become intangible as his teachings both refresh the spirits, though some of his parables just downright confuse you. Before you know it, the crowd has followed Jesus all the way through the city and out through Jericho's western gate and onto the country road. Here, some decide to return to their city, but still a good number, including you, follow on. About 100 or so metres outside the city wall, the road passes under a row of sycamore trees. These trees, with their wide-spanning umbrella-like branches, are only allowed to grow outside the city, as it's understood that if you are under one of these tent-like trees, and someone or something who is ritually unclean is also under that tree, you too are defiled by them and must seek ritual purification at the temple, which, to be honest, is a lot of hassle. Jesus slowly walks down the country road, and he comes to a stop beside one of the trees and looks up. 
There, hidden amongst the broad leaves of the sycamore tree, the face of Zacchaeus can be seen. Zacchaeus, yells Jesus. You and your fellow Jews scoff at the sight of the small man in the big tree. That fool, how humiliating it must be to be caught up a tree. It was bad enough to see that man run, but this is a new low for him. Whatever credibility he had left is now surely gone. And how wise it is of the Messiah to call him out like this, to give this man the insult he deserves. It then occurs to you that Zacchaeus has been caught outside of Jericho, and that's outside of his jurisdiction. He's no longer under the protection of Rome, and it'll be all too easy for him to be swallowed up by the crowd and for some anonymous person to stick a knife into his side. Once the crowd parts, all that would remain is lifeless body in the dust, and any questioning from Rome would not yield any clues. No one would have claimed to see a thing. Jews do not betray Jews, and there is no way they could arrest over 100 people. This is all coming together perfectly. Come down from that tree, says Jesus, and the crowd responds with muffled laughter, for I must stay at your house tonight. The crowd goes silent. We look at each other in disbelief. At first you think this is absurd. You never just invite yourself to someone's house. That's rude. It's just not how it's done. But then you realize what this means. How can the Messiah stay at this despicable man's house, especially on the eve of Passover? Doesn't he know that by eating his food, drinking his wine, and sleeping in his guest bed, that he too will be made unclean? Is there such thing as an unclean Messiah? The crowd begins to grumble, and some even stamp their feet in protest at this so-called Messiah, and you try to think what to make of all this. I'm going to stop the narration there, and we'll swing back to it in a little bit. Just give me a sec. But I hope you found that somewhat interesting and maybe a different way to see the story from the ground level, to see it from a first-person perspective. And while a few hundred people, probably at the most, would have seen that firsthand, many thousand more would have first heard about this story in the early readings of Luke's Gospel. And so while we've looked at it now in the first person, take that step back and look at it through the eyes of the first readers, looking at it in the context of Luke's Gospel, it can actually give us a few other uh, revelations about this story as well. And I just want to share three with you tonight too. And so the first one is that the nature of Zacchaeus' salvation echoes the parable of lost sheep, which is just a couple of chapters before uh, this story in Luke's Gospel. And so here we find that repentance is not just simply a confession of sin, but it's the acceptance of being found. And, and I love that, the acceptance of being found. This is what happens when the shepherd goes and gets the lost sheep. He finds the sheep. The sheep doesn't run off and he carries it back to the flock. And so too with Jesus, which echoes it. He finds Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus could have ran away and been humiliated and hid from Jesus and hid from the crowd. But no, he comes down, accepts that he was found, confronts Jesus, confronts the crowd, which as you know, it was dangerous, and salvation comes through that. The second point is that Luke potentially provides his readers a hidden meaning um, in his uh, gospel as well about this story. And so the thing about Luke's gospel, especially when you compare it to the other gospels, it's not one that's known for its great level of detail. And so um, 
if you look at the Gospel of Luke, it's a bit vague on some names, places, destinations and times as well. However, in this story, he actually gives us two very specific details. He gives us one, the name of the tax collector being Zacchaeus, and the second, he gives us the name of the tree that Zacchaeus climbs up, the sycamore tree. That's a lot of detail for a guy that doesn't add a lot of detail into his story. So, we have to ask, why is this added in? And so, what a lot of scholars believe Luke is doing here is using a bit of Greek wordplay. And so, if you go to the next slide, so the Greek word uh, for sycamore is sycamoria, and that shares a lexical root with that which Zacchaeus confessed to be, and that's uh, defraud or extortion, and that's sycophantes in, uh, in Greek. And so, this wordplay, this analogy for the sycamore tree to be a place of fraudulence is actually found in several other Greek texts as well. So we believe Luke might be actually mirroring this. This starts to make even more sense when we understand the meaning of Zacchaeus' name as well. Zacchaeus' name means righteous one. And so there's a possible analogy here that we think Luke might be getting at. And so Zacchaeus was given his name at birth. He was born as righteous. But through his choices and through his corruption and through his greed, it takes him to the place of fraudulence up the sycamore tree and what Jesus does for Zacchaeus is what he does for every single one of us he calls us to come down from our place of sin and take back our name as the righteous one again and so there are layers of uh, this story of Zacchaeus it's not just a simple Sunday school story that a lot of us are used to there's a German pastor and theologian called Dietrich Bonhoeffer and he uh, did a lot of stuff around uh, liberation theology during World War II and pushed back against the Nazis. And he says this about Zacchaeus. There is no cheap grace, only costly grace, both for the giver and the receiver. Jesus' price to bring grace to the house of Zacchaeus wasn't to simply stay there, but to take the anger of the crowd onto him. By his stripes we are healed. And I think that's an amazing observation, how much that mirrors what Jesus has done for us, that mission that Jesus came to earth for. Jesus came to earth to take our sins and put them onto himself, onto the cross. Just like in Zacchaeus, he took the anger from the crowd. The crowd started off as angry at Zacchaeus, but Jesus took that anger and put it onto him. They were angry that he said, I'm going to stay at your house tonight. And so he took that anger just like he took our sin and there's a, another beautiful image there as well and then the third point I want to raise is this story when we look at it through the context of Luke's gospel we can realize that it's actually a part two of a two-part story and the first part of that story is actually what I alluded to at the start of the narrative the story of Jesus healing the blind man and so we're just going to read that scripture now, and I'm going to show you how they link together. Go to the next one. And Carrie, can you do this one again for me? <laughs> Thanks. Um, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? 
Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Okay, so just flick to the next one. So here are some of the uh, similarities we see in the two stories. So firstly, the location is the obvious one. Jesus sees the blind man as he enters Jericho and sees Zacchaeus as he's exiting Jericho. They both seek Christ. The blind man calls out, Zacchaeus climbs a tree. They are both rejected by the crowd. Uh, the blind man is told to be quiet and Zacchaeus is unable to see because the crowd doesn't let him through. Uh, they both call by Jesus. The blind man is ordered to be brought to Jesus and Jesus tells Zacchaeus to come down from the tree. They both receive redemption. The blind man's healed of his blindness and Zacchaeus is accepted by the Messiah. They both praise God and Zacchaeus vows to give back half of everything he owns plus anything extra he's taken from the poor. And then we have the crowd's response. With the blind man, they praise God and with Zacchaeus, they grumble and they mutter. And so while there's quite a few similarities here, there are two main disparities that um, is quite interesting. So the first one, looking at these two stories together as the one story, we can see this as a redemption of the oppressed as well as the oppressor. The blind man is the oppressed beggar at the bottom rung of society. Zacchaeus, rich, wealthy, powerful, not liked, but he's on the top uh, rung of society there. And in both stories, Jesus offers them grace which is amazing. It doesn't matter where they sit on that social scale, they both receive the same grace. And the thing about Jesus, he doesn't choose sides either. He never endorses oppression and he doesn't ostracize the oppressor. Instead, in both stories, he just simply loves both people. The second main difference is the reaction of the crowd. And so the crowd, uh, when they gather around the blind man, the blind man's yelling out. They tell the, the blind man to be quiet, Get out of the way, we're trying to listen to the Messiah. And what does Jesus do? He says, no, bring him here. And that's basically like a verbal slap on the wrist to the crowd um, because Jesus accepts this blind man while they were rejecting him. And so as the blind man is brought to Jesus, the crowd is given a choice. Do they get angry and turn away from Jesus? Or do they admit that what they did was closed-minded and wrong? and join in with the praise that the blind man starts giving Jesus once he is healed. And what do they do? They choose to join in with the blind man. But what happens in the story of Zacchaeus? Again, the, um, Zacchaeus is told to come down from the tree. I'm going to stay at your house tonight. And again, the crowd has the same choice. Do we stay angry and turn away, or do we join in with the celebration of Zacchaeus? And what do they do this time? They get angry, they grumble, they stamp their feet. And that's why I stopped the narrative where I did, because I want us to put ourselves in those shoes. How would have you responded? God's, or Jesus is performing miracles. Do you grumble and stamp your feet? Do you just join in and do what the crowd does around you and ride that wave with them? Or do you realise that God's work here is larger than your understanding, and join in with the celebration. The difference between these two responses are huge, and I think it's one of the main points that we can take out of these stories. And so when God works outside of the boundaries that, that we set upon him, what do we do? What is our response? And so think of your life, and 
let's draw a circle around yourself and everyone on the inside of your circle is everyone who you're okay with. So it's, it's your family, you know, probably except for that weird cousin that we all have, they're probably on the outside of the circle. Uh, so it's your family, it's your friends, it's your, your work colleagues, the people you play sport with, um, I don't know, the people you, you're in a band with, uh, your fellow poggers. And then on the other side, you have um, the people that you're not okay with. And so it might be um, that annoying person <laughs> that you work with, or it might be that weird cousin that you have. Or it might be a certain people group, a minority, or a different religion, or a different church denomination, or a different church in itself. Who is on the outside of your circle? And who is your other? This is kind of echoing what I was going through in my last sermon when we are talking about crossing over the Sea of Galilee. Who is your other that you see on the other side? And you'd be angry and frustrated if you saw Jesus or God working in their life. Because when God works outside of our parameters and in the lives of the other, our natural response is anger or confusion. But, and that, that's okay, that can be a genuine reaction, a, a knee-jerk reaction to something that's happening. But if we are wise, we'll see that in ourselves. And we'll realise it's an invitation to widen our hearts and broaden our worldview. And this is how we grow and mature as followers of Christ. When we are confronted with something that makes us uncomfortable, do we open ourselves up with the love of God or do we close ourselves in, grumble, stamp our feet, double down on what our beliefs are and say, no, I'm right, they're wrong. Because when something like this happens, we like to question God. And questioning God can be a healthy thing. It helps us grow. But ultimately, those questions need to be turned back on ourselves. And it's our hearts that need to be analysed, not God's ways. But if we only ask ourselves bad questions, we'll only arrive at bad conclusions. And so, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we have to be good question askers. <laughs> uh, so, rather than asking questions like, why does God bless them? Or why is God just so unfair to me all the time? Perhaps we could ask better questions like, why is this so triggering for me? Or, if you want to get really honest with yourself, what fault in the other do I see bigger than God's grace? That's a hard one to ask yourself sometimes. Because we cannot grasp the vastness of God's work. It's bigger than what we can ever imagine, and we miss it so often, time and time again. And looking at these stories that we've been going through tonight, yes, Jesus had grace for the blind man, and he healed the blind man. And that's great for the blind man. But Jesus also had grace for Zacchaeus. And by redeeming Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus lifted his oppression off the hundreds, if not thousands, of Jews in Jericho. But they couldn't see it at the time, could they? They were angry, they grumbled, they stamped their feet. But I'm sure they felt the change, the miracle that Jesus did in Zacchaeus' life as the taxes were lifted and the, in the days, weeks, months, years to come, they would have had more to spend. Finances would have been easier. You would have been able to fix the roof in your house so your kids don't cry at night. You would be able to make ends meet. Less Jews would be going uh, across the poverty line. And so there is a greater work that was happening there, but we were unable to see it because we get so focused on our own world view. God's work is big. It doesn't always make sense, but we know it's good and it's generous. 
And so whenever we see God at work, whether it be someone on the inside of our circle, the outside of our circle, our response always should be to join in that celebration. That is what we're invited to do. It's bigger than what we understand, and that's okay. And so we see this invitation to celebrate in the parables of Jesus time and time again. When, again, the shepherd brings back the lost sheep, back to the flock, it says there is a celebration. When the woman finds her lost coin, there is a party. When the prodigal son returns home, the father throws a feast that all are invited to. But, as we know from the end of that story, not everyone goes to. The eldest son, he decided to stay outside the party and grumbled, was angry, and he stamped his feet. And so when we see God at work, where it is in the world around us, in ourselves or in the other, let's join in that celebration because it's an awesome thing to have a God, the God of celebrations. And let's enjoy it and party and not be angry and grumble our feet, but allow ourselves to grow, expand with love. And that's, I think, is an amazing thing. I think I'm going to stop it there now. <laughs> Caro, it's going to take us through communion, which I guess is a celebration of its own. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Owen. The bread's a bit weird tonight, everyone. Just um, it do, it won't taste weird. Um, I just normally confessions of the communion bread making um we make this when we make it in a bread maker but i only ever make the dough and then i cook it in the oven so it's nice and round it looks like a loaf of like looks like a thing anyway so we were out today and i'd set the timer you know so we'd get home to the dough and then i could take it out and put it in the oven except i did the counting wrong because i'm not the maths person in our house and we got home um, to the cooked loaf of bread that had overflowed the tin inside the bread maker. And so it looks a bit like a mushroom. So I'll show you. Look, it can be mushroom um, communion bread tonight, but it, <laughs> it looks the same. Um, I was thinking about us coming to the communion table tonight in light of the Zacchaeus story that we've been listening to and that we're sitting with and that we're reading and I think um, there's many powerful things in this story and many powerful lines that I love in this story. But one of the ones that I love is when Jesus calls out to Zacchaeus and says, I must eat with you today. Um, Zacchaeus, I want to come to your house for dinner. And there's this beautiful sense of, of God just wanting to eat with us and drink with us and enjoy dinner table time with us and I think that's like I don't the story kind of ends there we don't get to hear what happened as Jesus went to Zacchaeus's house and what the conversation was like whether it was lamb on the menu or something else we don't know like the details all we know is it would have been a wonderful dinner and I think wow what would it have been like to have been singled out by Jesus and to hear Jesus say, I want to come and eat with you tonight. And I think for many of us, like that's actually, if we're honest, some of the longing of our own hearts. That in the midst of a crowd, in the midst of all the things that are going on around us, that God would see us. That God would see you 
and your life and what you're dealing with and what you're walking through. And he would say, I want to come to your house for dinner. And he would come. And you would break bread with him and offer him your wine and your food and your hospitality. And it would be like this beautiful exchange. And it's almost like when we come to the table of the Lord, it's, it's like Jesus saying to us, I want you to come to my place for dinner and I am going to provide the wine and it's, and it's my acceptance and forgiveness and I am going to put the bread on the table and it's my very body, my very self given for you. Will you come and eat and drink with me and of me and be filled? And it's like this hospitable invitation to eat with God. And so as we come to the table tonight, um, I want you to come hearing God say to you, come and eat with me. Come and drink with me. Come and be friends with me. Come to my table. Let me serve you. Let me give myself to you. Let me meet your needs. Because that's the heart cry of Jesus as we come to his table. That he would be hospitable to us and enjoy friendship with us. And so we're going to we, we, we're gonna come and what we might do is maybe just come and receive the bread and ports on the, I don't even know if that, is that the port side of the church? I don't know. It is now the port side and the juice side. <laughs> and what I think it might be good to do is just go back and sit in your seats and then in groups of three or four, maybe just pray together um, and just pray. If there's someone in your little group that has a specific prayer need tonight, maybe pray for them and just take communion together in a little group of three or four and bless one another and imagine like you're having dinner with Jesus as you eat and as you drink so can we do that together tonight just sort of a sense of togetherness as we we come and eat and drink so I will break the mushroom well if you're still praying feel free to keep praying but Bless you. Have a fantastic week. May you go feeling the hospitality of Jesus in your life. And may you be aware of all the places where God may indeed be at work in your world. Places that you appreciate and maybe places that confront you. And may the Holy Spirit give you eyes to see all his work around you. Amen. Have, have, a, good, have a good week, everyone. See you next time. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. <laughs>